At Christ Church Vienna, we don't usually read the begats, the lists of names or genealogies from the Bible. But our second reading today is from the beginning of the New Testament, where the lineage of Jesus is traced from the Jewish patriarch Abraham through King David down to his own mother and father. Remarkably, the author includes both foreign and female names in the genealogy of Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathon, and Mathon the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. The word of the Lord. As the, uh, the kids are heading out, let me have a moment to introduce my friend Dean Miller. Dean uh, is originally from the West Coast, uh, but he and his wife Mary Ellen moved here about six, seven eight. years, eight years eight. ago now. Jeez. Eight. Um, they've worked with InterVarsity. He's worked with Apple Computers. He's currently working at the Falls Church Anglican. He is also an ordained minister over there. And uh, in my years working at the Falls Church Anglican, which was our planting church or mother church, we started out of them uh, a little over two years ago, I had the chance to get to know Dean uh, working together with him. And he has been one of my closest friends in ministry over the past five or six years now. Um, Dean is a very wise man, not a wise guy. He is a wise man. Um, I trust his instincts, his discernment, and he is a real follower of Christ. And one of the things he loves is to see people grow in their faith in Jesus Christ, something that I've appreciated with the way he cares for kids to adults to people at all age spectrums. Let me pray for you uh, before uh, you share the word of God with us this morning. God, we thank you for Dean and for his family Watch over them this Christmas season. Be with us now as we receive the word of God preached through this servant of yours. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 Good morning. It is a joy to be here. I am Johnny and Sarah, our dear friends, and we do whatever we can to help them and you grow and stretch. It's been a gift. I've come a few times uh, to Louise Archer when you used to be across the woods in the parking lot. And so now to come here, it's the first time I've been here in the auditorium here with you. So it's a gift to have watched this continue to grow and mature. And 
The kids used to go out the back. Now they come down the front. These subtle change. You get the cuteness coming at you rather than going away, which is great. So um, it's, a, it's a joy to be here. I'm really excited to have the, the, the title, the topic, and the sermon passages that Johnny gave me for this week. And I'm very impressed that Rob Thompson read all those names. He did a phenomenal job with those. Um, I want you to take a second and picture um, this area and this church 30 years from now. Okay, so not now. Not next week, not 30 days. Most of us are just living till the 26th of December. But try to stretch it a bit. Try to think about 30 years from now. What kind of church would you like this church to have been from now until then? What kind of church would you like this community of people? Every kid who just left now will be an adult by then. Even... Allison, Charles Quillen's little, little guy back there will be an adult by then. Everybody will be older. What kind of church do you think will have blessed Vienna the most in 30 years? If you're going to write out, this kind of church will really have the most significant impact for Jesus in the next 30 years. How would you answer that question? What would you say? You're in the middle of a series on your vision and values. Okay, what does it mean to be this particular church? I would assume by now most of you could answer that, right? Like Christ Church Vienna is a what? A gospel-driven, oh, there we go, externally focused, extended family, Anglican mission for Vienna, Virginia, right? And so how many of you have ever seen this statement before? How many of you heard it? Good. How many of you think you could say it with your eyes closed? We're not going to do this. I won't test you, but do you think you could? Okay, why do you think... You do this again and again, other than Johnny just loves this phrase and wants you to know it really well. Why do we come back again and again to a phrase like this? I'm coaching basketball right now. I've coached the last several years my kids in various sports. This winter, I'm coaching my daughter's eight-year-old girl's basketball team. And one of the things we do at the beginning of every practice is we walk through particular skills and drills to get them better and better at these skills. Inevitably, with any kid, any team I've coached, when you say, can you do X, can you dribble, you'll get a group of kids who go, yeah, yeah, I can dribble. Okay, and so what we do is we try to go from slapping and spanking the ball like it did something wrong to guiding the ball back and forth, right, down. Then you do your right hand and your not-so-dominant hand, your left hand, and we go back and forth. And then we always go for kind of the coup de gras. The, the big thing we practice almost every week is the behind-the-back dribble, right? Because if you can do that, you can do a lot of things with the ball, right? Okay? Now, inevitably we get kids, and some of these kids have my same last name, who say, I can already do that. I can do that, which means I can do that. Now, the real catch is this is how it'll look. We did this yesterday with the girls at practice. Because the big move is not the right side, and it's not the left side. It's the what? The behind the back. And we get that herky-jerky motion. Because what we want them to do is work from that to where they can go like this in traffic or on the actual court. We go back and forth. And you're in the middle of working on these moves so that you can go behind your back out in the neighborhood. And you can go behind the back in your community, and you can go behind the back at school, and you can go behind the back here at Marshall High School, and you can go behind the back on the metro or at work. Your left hand, right hand are these virtues and values, and what Johnny wants and you want 
is to be able to live these out in the community now. Because if you want that kind of impact in 30 years, you have to revisit the basics again and again and again. So that you're able to say, oh, I, not, I know that. The issue is not, do you know this phrase? The issue is, can you do it in traffic? Literally, can you do it in traffic when you're cut off on the way to town? Are you a gospel-driven Christian when someone cuts you off in the HOV lane? And what you've covered so far, so these first few, the gospel-driven, this sense that you're guided by the good news of Jesus dying for us. That's the fundamental good news of the Jesus-loving church anywhere. But particularly, you want to keep it front and center. It's the first thing you tell yourselves about who you are. Then you're externally focused. You're embracing the sense that this didn't just happen for you, but it happened for the person next to you and the person in front of you here in this room and the other people in the world. It's not just good news for you. And you spent last week looking at, again, this sense you're part now of an extended family. This big implication of that good news. If we're grasped by the gospel, we realize it's not just for us, and we've been grafted into a new family. And last week you looked at the broad scope. Johnny did a a brief but broad look at really the whole scope of biblical theology, what we call creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We've been created in the image of a God that is fundamentally relational, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we are created to be relational people, both with God and with one another. That longing is embedded in you and me. I don't know how many of you get the post and saw the Parade Magazine article this weekend that, on Emma Thompson. Anybody get that or read that this morning? If you haven't read it, it's really interesting because one of the questions the Parade interviewer asks her is, you do so many movies about love. Why is that? It's such an inane question. Okay, why do you think? But she gives this profound answer. She basically says, well, this is what we were made to do. Yes, darn right. That is exactly right. What great theology. It is what you were made to do, to love, because that's the way our God, Father, Son, and Spirit is. But then we broke those relationships. We created one way, and then we fell. We chose a different way to love ourselves and not God or each other. And so there's this myriad level of tragic consequences for this breaking. We're broken in our relationship with the Lord. We're broken in our relationship to how we're made and what God intended for us. We're broken in our relationship to our neighbors. And even we have broken the created world we live in. And so this world that's supposed to be safe, where we're supposed to be naked and unashamed, and all the value of naked, not just physically, but we're supposed to be secure. We're not. Instead, we're afraid emotionally or spiritually We're concerned mentally. We long for something that we want to make happen. And so we bring in other ways to maybe make that happen. We long for God and for restoration. But if we can't get to God, we try something else. We try sex or we try ambition or we try power. We try approval. Try and get back to the garden, to the sense that we long to be known and to be loved. And our God who loves us redeems us. We're not just created. We're not just fallen. But what we celebrate here in the Advent is the sense that God loves us so much he sent his own son as a baby in human form to die for you and for me. This is astoundingly good news for us. And when he did that, he took on these tragic consequences to change them for you and for me. So now not only are we redeemed, but we're being restored. 
And that restoration is a vision not only of what the cross does, but of what heaven will be like. And so you and I are called to be a part of the gospel work where the gospel changes the fall. So when you're an extended family, when you love each other, you are telling people this is what heaven is like. Not just Eden, but heaven. And so to be a gospel-driven, externally focused, extended family is to be a window into heaven. Maybe you got up this morning and you thought, what I'm doing is not that important. That's not true. All you're doing is living out the kingdom of heaven. That's unbelievably good news. So that's this grand overview. And the question that begs for me and my guess is for you is, okay, great. How do I do that? How do I do that? I know I am taste my fallenness. I know I'm full of a to-do list that will never get done. What do I do? So I want to give you three moves, three skills that this church and any church need to develop, three behind-the-back moves to get good at, to move from the right side behind the back to the left side, to be that extended family. The first move is this. You want to move from outsiders to family. You want to move from outsiders to family. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn with me to Isaiah 56. Or if you could put it up, that'd be great. This is the first passage that was read, that Alice read this morning. And I laughed with Johnny this morning. I said, you gave me a passage about eunuchs and foreigners, and I picked a passage about prostitutes and staying with nakedness. This could go wrong so many ways today. So if you're here and you're a a kid and you just have a great conversation this afternoon with your parents to get dismissiveness on some of this stuff. But this passage is an unbelievably sweet passage. It is the, the gospel news, the messianic promise for people who are alone and who are misunderstood and feel unaware. Eunuchs are people who cannot reproduce. They cannot produce a family. And Johnny talked to you last week about how in the ancient world, your sense of Fullness of life wasn't just yourself, you. It was relational and particularly three-generationally relational. Parents, grandparents, children, over and over again. And people who are eunuchs are people who cannot reproduce. And so in a community like that, they are seen as less than full and less than a legacy. You're a single generation. Now, reproduction in Israel is very important. It's why over and over again, the Old Testament and the New Testament, particularly the Advent passages, we see God bringing reproduction to barren people. Abraham and Sarah, Mary, a teenager who's a virgin, Elizabeth and Zechariah who are old and barren, again and again and again. And what Isaiah 56 is promising to these people is reproduction and a legacy. You will be grafted into a line that will extend forever. That's incredibly good news for an outsider who doesn't have that opportunity otherwise. This is also good news for the foreigner. In this passage, Isaiah is targeting eunuchs and foreigners. It's such a specific passage. People who are foreigners, again, are outside culture. We often call them now third culture. People trying to figure out what is a culture like? How many of you have ever lived anywhere other than America? so many people here. I went to grad school to seminary in British Columbia in Canada. And there's so many things you don't understand, even though it's only, quote, unquote, across the border a few miles from the United States, you're suddenly thrown into an area that you don't fully understand. You don't know the customs. You don't know the jokes. 
you don't know the history again and again. Think about these two segments of people in this time in our year during the holidays. What's it like to be a foreigner here? In Canada as a foreigner, guess when Thanksgiving is? It's in October. That makes no sense. You're suddenly thrown in and saying, I don't get it here. I don't know it here. And what are you asking people now if you're going somewhere? Who are you going to be with on Christmas Day? Who are you going to be with over the holidays? Or if a eunuch, where do you go? Who do you get with? Who's your community and your family? And yet here's this messianic message saying you are a part of an extended family that is so much bigger and is, extends forever in history. What good news that must have been. What a hopeful word. If you heard that word in Isaiah's time, which is late 600s B.C., you'd think, boy, I hope that happens soon for me. The NIV has this great phrase for verse 8. God says, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. This good news even then was externally focused. It wasn't just about Israel. God is saying, I will gather people to you that aren't gathered yet. God's going to do it. God's already doing it. It's why you're here and why I'm here. You're a part of the answer to that verse. The implication is more are coming. And if you think 30 years out and what it'll be like to live in Vienna, look at these seats. I was with you in Louise Archer when you had room. (laughs) And I was with you, Louise Archer, when you didn't have room. And now I'm in here where you have some room. But 30 years from now, will this be what it looks like? What kind of family will you be? So this was great, great news to the people who heard it from Isaiah. One scholar says that they were left waiting for a new world to happen. Waiting for a new world to happen. And so that's why Matthew 1 is so powerful and why we celebrate Advent again and again and again. Matthew is written to the Jews. And he's setting up in Matthew 1 the royal lineage of Jesus. As soon as you as a Jew heard Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, I had your attention. Wow, this guy must be important. But why doesn't Matthew leave off there? You're already establishing Jesus' bona fides. You vetted him. A word that means a lot in our area. You vetted Jesus through Israel's history. Why add these names, Tamar and Rahab and Ruth? Why not leave those out? Do I need to know those? Well, I do. (laughs) Because those people are letting you know the world promised to Isaiah is happening now. Because this is what the extended family of God looks like. You get Tamar, a Canaanite woman from Genesis 38, grafted into the family. You get Rahab, another Canaanite woman and a prostitute, grafted in to the extended family. You get Ruth, a widow who is barren and a Moabite grafted in to the extended family. Ruth has no seed, no legacy. She's a female eunuch. Nothing will happen to her line but for the grace of God. She will die and not be remembered. Foreigners and eunuchs in Matthew 1. And then we keep going down and Rob finished reading and the last line we get, and then Jesus, the son of Joseph, who is called the Christ. And if, you, if we read that the right way, we'd have trumpets 
and firecrackers and bears rolling down the aisle to get your attention to go, that is unbelievable news. Because what I'm saying to you is that long-awaited world is happening now. Well, well, what'd you say? From Abraham and Isaac to Tamar and Rahab and Ruth to this guy, Jesus, who's the Christ, the Messiah, the inaugurator of all that good news. So that means that this news foretold centuries ago is suddenly happening now. And if I'm reading Matthew, you have my attention. Jews, Gentiles, old, young, the sexually broken, the barren, teenagers. Here in a new extended family. And where does Matthew end? This is where he begins, but where does Matthew end? I bet most of you know. That what Matthew tells us to do is go therefore and... Make disciples. Go, therefore, and tell people this gospel-driven, externally-focused, extended family news. Isaiah was a foretelling of the Messiah, and Matthew's a foretelling of the restoration. So that first move for us is to make outsiders family ourselves. When you see someone new coming through the doors, you welcome them. When you sit next to somebody here on Sunday morning and you don't know them, you assume they're new. And they can assume you're new. And the two of you can be surprised. Oh, we've been here three years. Oh, me too. Because you overextend in the extended family to welcome people the way Jesus does and God does. You would be offended that anyone would come here and in your circle of influence because you're sent by the gospel to not extend the way Matthew 1 extends. You would hate for someone to think they were too far out of the family, to think that they're a Rahab or a Tamar or a Ruth and that they would not be brought in. That would never be who you would be. And so the first move is from outsider to dear and treasured family. The second move I want to expound on a little bit is this gospel extended family moves from the bundled to the naked From the bundled to the naked. Remember I said this could go wrong lots of ways. Here's probably the biggest way. What kind of family then? If I'm welcomed into this family, what kind of family is it? And you're called to be a safe family where people come to know what it means to be who God created them to be. This should be the place where people are most free to be themselves in the way they were created to be. See, a universal implication, again, because of how we're created, is this hunger and desire to know and be known. To know and be known. Both to share and to learn to relate and to listen. In fact, it's a marker of maturity and health. As we grow and develop kids, we're really growing them into maturity to be able to do both those things. To know themselves. I feel this. I think this. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. And be able to work out what they're feeling but also be able to relate and listen to somebody else who feels and thinks and experiences those things. We even have markers of immaturity in our culture. If you're only able to know yourself, you're a narcissist. And if you think you have no worth or value, you're the other extreme. You have value and dignity. We have these extremes of what some would say, C.S. Lewis describes as the bentness, the consequences of our sin. We are bent inward. Now, the best place to grow in that sense of knowing, being known, to taste that is in relationships where we feel safe 
and protected and secure. And in God's ideal way, the first place we taste that is in our human families. And whenever you taste that, you hear the echo of safe vulnerability, the way Johnny described nakedness last week in Eden, meaning really vulnerability in all manner, shapes, and sizes. We are safe because we are protected with relationship. You're hearing the echo of Eden and tasting the foreshadowing of heaven. Anytime you're experiencing that, you're getting a taste of what heaven will be like. But often instead of that, what we don't have is pain and sorrow. We live in a fallen and broken world. And no matter how great your parents were or I am as a parent, I'm still going to hurt and injure my kids. And you're going to be in a fallen world that hurts and injures you. And so what we do instead of being naked is we bundle. We start putting on things to protect ourselves. We might put on a a relational coat to say, just kind of keep people at bay. You've met people like this who have a hard time engaging people. We might put on an emotional coat. I might might be involved on different teams or at work, but I'm not really going to share how I'm doing. Or we might put on a verbal coat. Keep people at bay with my words. Now, do I look like anywhere near my true self to you dressed like this? Or do I look ridiculous? And it looks ridiculous physically, but it looks ridiculous spiritually too. Because it's not how God intended for you or for me to be. And the place where people are pulled out of their coats and experience that safe vulnerability should be the church. should be an extended family committed to the gospel. It should be a place where people like Ruth and David and Tamar and Jesus are our ancestors. That kind of bundling is not to mark or characterize the church. If you read through Matthew 1, you'll see these people in that chapter have failed again and again and again. Other than Jesus, all of them dropped the ball in some way, shape, or form. But they were not just created and not just fallen, but they were redeemed and restored. So to be a safe, extended family, to move from the bundled to the naked, you have to demonstrate what it means to be safe by being vulnerable yourselves. You have to let people know that in this community, people struggle. This is a hard thing in the area we live in. The idol of our area is power. We like power in all manner, shapes, and forms. And one of the ways we grab power is by looking like we don't have need or couldn't fail. It's one of the coats we put on. Ask yourself, why do people move to D.C.? Because the assumption is we're going to change the world here. There's some great things happening here that are affecting and changing the world. But isn't there just a touch of presumption in that belief? People move here for power, but lots of people move here. So think about your area and community for a second. Washington, D.C., according to the the moving companies who do this kind of research, is the number one place where people inbound move, move to be there, the D.C., Northern Virginia area in the country. And it's been that way for five years. So for the last five years, people, particularly here, and I bet we're always near the top five or ten, but in the last five, more people have moved to this area than anywhere else in the country again and again and again, five years in a row. 
Now, what's interesting, that's one moving company's data. Another moving company's data takes the whole country and rates inbound moves, outbound moves, and in-betweens. And you'd think that you hear that inbound, that we would be an inbound move place. But when you look at the data, we're actually an in-between place. So it's not just that a lot of people are moving here. It's not that a lot of people are just moving to Vienna. It's actually that a lot of people are also moving away from here. Which means this is an incredibly transient place to live. And I know I'm preaching to the choir. But it means people move here, and what, you know what they don't assume they're going to do is live here. I'd lived here, we'd lived here four years, and I went to see a friend of mine in Austin, Texas, who I'd been on InterVarsity staff with. And over breakfast, I'd said, you know, how's it going? They'd lived there a couple, just about 18 months. He said, you know, we love Austin because it's just such a great place to live. And I was born in the district, so I, I love D.C., have my whole life. But I thought, I've never heard anybody say, this is a great place to live in my time in D.C., because what people do is they move here to get something. A job, a promotion, a degree, power. You know the number two place that's the inbound move place in the country? Oregon. D.C. and Oregon. I was talking to someone yesterday and we said, you know, people move to Oregon to recover from D.C. That's why. <laughs> now, I love Oregon. I spend a lot of time in the Northwest. I love Oregon. And a lot of, there's lots of reasons why people move, like education, job, that family, different reasons. But the reality of being a gospel-driven, externally focused, extended family in Vienna is this is a place where there are foreigners again and again and again. And by you extending family to them, you are not only loving them, you are communicating the good news of Isaiah 56 to them. You are surrounded by foreigners. I bet lots of you here this morning are sitting and saying, I feel foreign here too. Some of you might have lived here for years. I think this is a lonely place to live, but for the church and commitment. So the move for a church is from bundled to naked because only as people are known and only as you extend to foreigners will they realize I will remove these layers of protection and hiding and inauthenticity to be my true self and to say, I struggle. In this community to say, I'm struggling with something, you are already countercultural. You're already a part of the kingdom. What would you be like in 30 years? What would this community look like? Can this be a place where people are safe? Should people have to go to Oregon to taste the kingdom of heaven? I don't think so. So first, the move is from outsiders to extended family, treasured family. The second move is from bundled to naked. And then the third move is from busy to available, from busy to available. Now, you might have been with me the whole time up till now and say, I agree, I feel lonely, I feel like a foreigner, etc. But you're looking at me and you're going, I don't know how to do that. And I bet if we took a poll and I said, what's the hardest thing for you about living this way, my guess is the, the gut first response we'd all have would be time. Time. And I want to push back on that a little bit on myself and on you and say it's not time. I think it's actually priority. I don't think it's time. I think it's priority. I organize my life around the things I find and make priorities about. 
Is it priority? It's like wanting to dribble. Let's say I came to you and I said, I want to become a better dribbler. Watch. Is it ever going to happen for me? No. And the reason I'd want to become a better dribbler is probably because I want to be a better basketball player. And the issue there isn't about dribbling. The issue is about priority. And you would look at me because you're smart and you would say, you probably need to pick up the ball and dribble a little bit. See, being an extended family is a crying cultural hunger. It's a cultural hunger because of the creation, because you were created for community and relationship. And everybody you meet was too. Everybody you meet was too. It's a crying cultural hunger because of the fall. We lost it as a consequence of our sin. It's why we're all running around trying to find it another way. It's a crying cultural hunger because of redemption. The cross has restored relationship between God and us. Read Paul in Romans. The ministry of reconciliation is what we've been given. And it's a crying cultural hunger because of restoration. It's what the cross promises. But it's a sacrifice to live it out in the world. It just is. It would be foolish to think that we could serve a God who sacrificed on a cross and think that it wouldn't cost us something to live that way too. And what I want to say to you is, if we don't, not just you in Vienna, but me in Falls Church, if we don't live this out, we will miss what God wants us to do and be a part of. Do you hear that? We will miss it. And I would challenge you and say, I think you'll be bored. I think if you live without giving yourself to this mission, not because it's this church, and Johnny doesn't want you to do it because of this church. He wants you to do it for the kingdom of Jesus. But I believe you'll actually be bored in 30 years. Not unentertained. You and I both know you could find a way to entertain yourself between here and the back of the room. Click, 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 click. But bored. Because what I believe and what this church is about, and I trust every church who calls on the name of Jesus is about, in Vienna and everywhere else, is that this news is more exciting than any book and any movie and any Frappuccino and any shopping spree at Tyson's and any Redskins Super Bowl win, which is not going to happen in my lifetime probably. (laughs) I believe it's more exciting than any of those things. And you have been brought into the eternal. You've been given a window into heaven and a chance to communicate that to Vienna. So, what do you do? I want to give you four practical things briefly before I close. First, from the the passage on Mary and the Advent passages in Matthew, keep reading just a few verses. The angel comes to her. She gives her this news that basically her life is going to be turned on its head and everything she ever dreamed about her life is going to be different. And she says, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. That's called oblation. The first thing you do is you oblate. And you say, Lord, here am I available to you. We move from busy to available. I know your lives are full. I'm not saying you shouldn't go to work or shouldn't be committed to the things you are, but you make yourself available in those places. In Northern Virginia, this might be the most significant act. Because what you're saying is God's kingdom is more important than all the other kingdoms beckoning my attention. It's more important than basketball practice or swim team or making partner or the latest NGO initiative you have or, 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 or. 
If you know me, you know I love those things. You can bring me back. I'll preach on vocation. But those have a proper place. And the first place is for the kingdom of heaven and this good news. And so the first thing we do is we oblate before the Lord. The second thing we do is prioritize. Now, you are greatly served by your mission because you say, we are this, 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 this church in Vienna. Boy, that is a gift to you. You're not trying to be it in McLean. You're not trying to be it in Herndon or Reston. Vienna. I know some of you live in those cities, but you know what I mean? You're not trying to be everything. God has given you a mission here. And with all due respect to Vienna, there's plenty of brokenness here to be served. But you might want to look at your lives between now and the new year and say, what am I going to say no to? Just for the act of saying no. Because I'm saying yes to this good news. So first you oblate. Second, you prioritize. Third, you pray. You say, Lord, here am I. Here's where I live. Here's where I work. Take it and use it. I don't know how. I'd encourage you to prayer walk where you live three times between now and Christmas. It's 10 days, three times in 10 days. Take a half hour prayer walk and oblate. Lord, here am I. What's going on here? You know the stories here, Lord, I don't. What would you have me be and do here to be your extended family? I believe God would speak to you. I don't have all the ways that that could work out, but I know the Lord could. Do it in your neighborhood. Jesus comes and moves into our neighborhood. You're already in neighborhoods. Some of you might walk those and know the stories behind the doors. I did this this summer once, and I walked up the street, and I was so struck by, there's some real, the, the scope of stories. You want to say, Lord, would, would this house not be a cautionary tale, but would it be a redemption story? There are people on our block that are on the cusp of cautionary tales, and I don't want that for them. And I'll walk by their house, and I might, the only thing I might pray might be, Lord, make this a redemption story, and if you want to use me in it, show me how. We oblate, we prioritize, we pray. And then we ask, who are the eunuchs and foreigners in our midst? The Moabites and Canaanites in my circle of influence. Who might have the hardest time making it to church or being welcome in church? You guys do such a good job with kids here. Kids here come knowing they're going to have fun. That is a remarkable gift you give to them every week. It might be a lot about donuts and basketball, but they're also getting communion and worship and you all. That is a gift. Who else? Do teenagers know they're welcome? Are there people here who look at the teenagers and say, it's not just their parents' job, it's my job, or the teens on your block? Can they ask questions? Because the issue for a teenager is going to be, if it's cool, it's got to be cool for somebody other than my parents, as cool as you all are. Who are those people? What about the people not married? Either because they've never married or they're widows or widowers. Do they feel welcome in your neighborhoods or here? Those are foreigners in our culture. We don't have a slot for them on the holidays. What happens? In 30 years, when we are together again, Lord willing, how will you have moved into Vienna's neighborhoods? What kind of church will you have been? Because the way the Lord moves the church will be through the people of the church. And that's not just your leaders, that's you. What kind of moves we have you developed? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for the gift of this church in this city. And 
It is always such a joy to be here and see how you are working and growing. Grant them, Lord, ways to respond finitely to your infinite vision. You know their commitments. You know their heart. You know they're giving in so many ways already. There are coaches here and teachers here and people who serve volunteer hours so many places and people who work with great jobs. And we just ask and make ourselves available to you and what you want. Help us give the good news and share this good news of what it means to be part of your extended family wherever we are this week. And bless them this season. In your name, amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.